Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Good morning, guys. Good to see your faces this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn them to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 today. And if you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back there by the, the AV booth. Uh, please grab one of those. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have one uh, as you leave today. As you turn there, let me, let me review from last week. Last Sunday, we discussed divorce and really Jesus's view of divorce. Uh, you heard my tragic story on divorce. Uh, we also learned that God himself, Yahweh himself, gave Israel a certificate of divorce. So God knows the pain of divorce himself. A um, couple key points from last week. When your approach to scripture is wrong, your approach to marriage, your approach to life, your approach to everything is going to be wrong because Scripture is the foundation. Scripture is the standard of our life. So when you start wrong with that, if you've if you got an agenda reading God's Word, you're not going to get the, the full meaning of, of the text. We talked about how divorce happens, and, and this is, these are Jesus' words, right? Divorce happens because of the hardness of our hearts. We file for divorce uh, because of the hardness of our hearts, either one party or both parties. Uh, we talked about how the fall, it did not change the permanence of marriage in Genesis chapter 3. Happened a long time ago, but just because it happened a long time ago doesn't negate the fact that God intended marriage to be uh, permanent. And lastly, that marriage is supremely sacred. Marriage is supremely sacred. And then we ended last Sunday talking about how the gospel, it frees us up from, from the sexual sin, the shame that, that we carry. Uh, those of you who have been divorced like myself, we carry, we carry that baggage with us. And I really want to reiterate that this morning, guys, before we move forward, because... Um, as you read last week's text, it just seems like if you stop there, Jesus doesn't give any exceptions to divorce. It appears from that particular text that if you're divorced and you're remarried, well, Jesus says that we are adulterers. And is that, is that the case? What I want to share with you is as you read God's word on any subject matter here, we have to find out what else God's word says about that subject to understand it completely. So... And you can do that with anything. I, I would encourage you to read the New Testament and, and learn what it has to say about marriage. You want to learn, learn what, what it means to be a, a godly man? Read through that lens as you read through the New Testament. A godly woman? What's it look like? What are our duties here as the church? Read through the whole New Testament. You don't have to read you know, a best-selling book that's on the New York Times bestseller list. Just read God's Word. 
and, and look for those answers there. Um, but I wanted to share this verse with you because this really, no matter what we've done in our past, doesn't matter if you're divorced, doesn't matter if you're a sexual sinner, doesn't like myself, it doesn't matter. Romans 8.28, this verse is still in the Bible. You know? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The scripture doesn't say some things. It doesn't say most things. It, it doesn't even say a few things, right? We know that a few things work together. No, 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 no. See, every translation has that adjective, all things. The Greek word is pass. All things. That includes our sexual sin. That includes the stain of divorce. We know, I mean, think about it. We know that all things, Lord, are you, are you saying my testimony, everything that I've ever done, all of those things are going to work together for my good and your glory? You sure about that? We know that all things work together. So guys, I just wanted to reiterate that this morning because as I was thinking about last Sunday and, you know, that was a tough message. And I just, once again, I, I want you to walk out of here freed up, knowing that you don't have to carry that baggage, okay? Um, I mean, think about it. Is, is your God that big that he can do that in Romans eight twenty eight? Is your God that big? To take adultery and to take pornography and to take divorce and work it out for his good, for, for our good and for his glory? He is that big, and he will work it out if you let him. But you do have to cooperate a little bit. That's where the struggle comes in, and you got to cooperate with him. Well, today we're going to learn God's, God's heart when it comes to children. Last Sunday, we saw, we saw how Jesus elevated the status of women in marriage, and today we're going to see how Jesus elevates the status of children in the family as well. It's not a coincidence here that we're moving from the subject of marriage and divorce to children, because obviously children come from marriage. So let me show you a couple Old Testament verses here. Psalm chapter 127, verse 3 Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, and offspring a reward. So like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. So that's children. Um, you know, we see the importance of, of children all throughout Scripture. Remember when Jacob's wife cried out to her husband, she says, Give me children! Or I'm going to die. Genesis chapter 30. I know it's a little weird, but you know. Hannah, remember Hannah praying in the temple? She's praying for, for a child. The priest walks in and she's kind of mumbling a little bit. And uh, the priest says, are you drunk? Have you been drinking? No, I'm praying and I'm praying for this child. And, and God answers the prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1. He gives her a child, and she names him Samuel, right? God has heard. God has heard my prayer. So throughout Scripture, God teaches how the family and children specifically are a blessing, and that is our topic for today. Um, today's Scripture passage is incredibly short. It's only four verses, 
But don't let the brevity fool you here. This passage today is a theological key that's going to unlock the door for one of the most asked questions about children and death. Uh, What is that question? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 and following. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. These are the very words from God for us this morning. Please pray with me. So, Father in heaven, uh, today is a, a beautiful day to open up your word and for your church to gather. And, uh, Lord, we're, we're going to be praying and thinking and pondering and, and going through your word verse by verse so that you can teach us how much you love children. So, Father, thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Have a seat, guys. Thank you. So Mark chapter 10, verse 13. Let's take a deeper look here. People were bringing little children to him, so that's Jesus, in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. So there appears to be no change in location from last Sunday between verses 12 and 3. Jesus is teaching. He's still teaching in the house. He's teaching on divorce and and remarriage. Verse 13 Um, people, parents find out and they start bringing their children to the house. And it was common for Jewish parents to bring their children to the synagogue for elders to bless them. Your translation may say touch or bless here. It means the same thing. Um, Now, this tradition comes from the Old Testament. We see Noah, he blessed his children in Genesis chapter 9. Although when you read that whole story, it was a bit weird. Uh, Isaac, he he blessed his his son Jacob, but he did not bless Esau. And that story will rival the best soap operas on the networks today, Genesis 27. Jacob blessed Joseph's sons by laying his hands on their head, Genesis chapter 48. And then Jacob also blessed his 12 sons, which were the 12 tribes, in Genesis chapter 49. So this concept of blessing is all throughout Scripture. It's very proper. It's very traditional. It's it's wonderful. Um, There's absolutely nothing wrong with this. The 12 disciples, they they were familiar with what's going on here. And really, this is a beautiful segue from last week because Jesus, he's emphasizing the sanctity of marriage in the home. But for some odd reason, the 12, it's like they turn into bouncers for Jesus. They, they try to keep, you know, the, the parents away and, and these kids away from Jesus. So in verse 13, the, we see that the disciples rebuked the parents. So the 12, that word rebuke there, they're warning the parents. They're punishing, the, it's, that's a better translation, they're punishing the parents for trying to, to disturb Jesus. So evidently, Jesus hears all the ruckus outside, right? He hears the argument. 
Um, keep in mind, in the Jewish culture, children, they were a blessing to the family, but they, they're not gushed over like we gush over little babies today. Um, it would be fair to say that in the first century, that small children were, were tolerated. And we see that here with the 12, don't we? The, the disciples, they felt that Jesus somehow was doing, quote unquote, like real ministry inside the house. And they wanted to protect Jesus from all these trivial issues with kids. Um, we are not told that these children have any specific needs at all. We don't know if they have any medical problems. So more than likely, this was not a time of healing. It just looks like the parents uh, wanted to bring their healthy kids, and they wanted Jesus to bless them, to touch them. So verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. So he was not happy. And he said to the disciples, come on, guys, let the children come to me. Don't, don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So Jesus sees his disciples start to turn these people away, and he becomes angry. Jesus becomes angry at the 12 because what they're doing is unjust. With the 12 disciples, it, what they're doing is just wrong. And it's not just wrong, it's an injustice to the parents. It's an injustice to the to the uh, children. Now, we, we've seen Jesus become emotional two other times as we go through the gospel so far. Uh, Jesus was moved by compassion when he healed that man with leprosy in Mark chapter 1. We also witnessed Jesus become angry at the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3 when the Pharisees, uh, when they just cared less about this, this man that had the, the crippled hand, the withered hand. But in this verse, something's different. Jesus becomes emotional for a, another reason here. Um, it would not be a stretch to say that Jesus was outraged, that he was irate at this, at this time. Why? Well, because, now keep in mind when I say anger and outrage, this is not like a sinful anger. There's a holiness to Jesus' anger, right? There's a, there's a justness to his anger. Well, the reason why he's, up so, he's so upset is because the disciples, they're missing one of the most basic elements in his, mis, in his ministry. Um, Jesus says, don't stop them. So the picture here, once again, the 12, they are verbally assaulting these parents. They almost, you could say, they were physically restraining them from getting in the door. I mean, this is not good. This is not, this is not a good scene. This is ugly. This is unfortunate. This is embarrassing. So verse 14 continues, Jesus says, don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So wait a second. There's a lot at stake right here at this moment. It doesn't, because it doesn't get any more important than the kingdom of God, right? We're, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about eternity here. So this is very, very interesting. Nowhere else in Mark's gospel has Jesus talked like this about the kingdom of God, especially about the kingdom of God belonging to anyone. So we had John the baptizer preach it. We had Jesus preach the kingdom of God, but they don't explain it, not like this. So the sense here is that children have a place in heaven. Children have a place in heaven. So that brings us to key point number one. Children are included in the kingdom of God. 
children are included in the kingdom of God. Now, wait a second. Because Jesus, he didn't even talk about the kingdom of God with his disciples. So what is it about children that justifies um, this conversation? What is it about children that Jesus is, is outraged at his disciples? Well, this is the second passage in Mark's gospel where he talks about children. Let me show you the first one. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. So they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. So the they there, that's, that's the disciples. The disciples were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus sits down. He calls the 12. He says, all right, boys, listen up. If anyone wants to be first, you got to be last. You got to be a servant of all. And then he takes a child. And he had, he had this child stand among the 12 disciples. And then Jesus took him in his arms and he said to the disciples, he says, look, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him, so that's God the Father, but him who sent me. So both of these passages deal with children and how children are essential to the kingdom of God. So key point number two, Jesus loves children. Jesus loves children. Now you see that and you go, come on, Dustin, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? We know that. But, I mean, look at the text. The kids, they're not getting a whole lot of love right now from the 12 disciples. The parents, they're not getting any love. We also notice here that Jesus healed many children. Remember when, when Jesus healed the daughter in Mark chapter 5? He not only healed her, he raised her from the dead. Jesus healed a boy possessed by a demon in Mark chapter 9 when Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John, they're coming down the mount from the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus healed a politician's son in John chapter 4. So yes, Jesus loves children. And children love Jesus, and we'll get to that here in a second. So back to verse 14. So when Jesus saw it, so Jesus sees all the commotion his disciples arguing with parents, it's not good. He's embarrassed, right? So Jesus was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me, guys. Come on, don't stop them. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So what does Jesus mean? What's he mean here that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these? Is he saying that all children are saved? Is that what he's saying? No, scripture, scripture tells us that no one is automatically saved. Scripture tells us that for someone to be saved, we have to repent from our sins. We have to believe that Jesus is God. We have to believe that Jesus suffered and he died. Um, he died on a cross. He was buried. And then three days later, he walks out of his own grave. That's how he proves to us that he is indeed God. That's... that's the resurrection is God's stamp of approval that our sins have been transferred to him and his goodness and his righteousness has been given to us. Um, Jesus did all of that to satisfy God's wrath for our sin. So this is not an automatic salvation, what we're seeing here. But what Jesus is telling, telling us here is that children are spiritual beings. 
So in other words, Jesus is affirming the spiritual capacity of children. So a little sermon in a sermon. Let me go on a little rabbit trail here. This is why I'm a big advocate of, of being, children being in the service with us today. I'm not a big fan of splitting the families apart. Youth ministry over here, you know, um, high school over here, and, and all that stuff. I, I want children to hear the word of, I don't want them to hear Bible stories, right? Not just stories about Jesus. I want them to learn the word of God verse by verse so that they can experience God day by day just like the rest of us. End of my mini-sermon. Notice here, nothing is said about the spiritual condition of the parents in this verse. We don't know if the parents are believers or unbelievers. Obviously, the children's faith, that's a non-issue because infants and, and little children, they don't have the capacity to make a decision for the gospel. So Jesus' statement is, it's unusual, isn't it? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus doesn't place any qualifications on this statement, any conditions. There's no restrictions on it. So this is very, very important to understand. Jesus is referring to all children in this verse, every single one of them, because all children are in the same boat. They are unable to believe. So the natural question becomes, all right, well, wait a second. When is a child able to believe? Well, in the Jewish culture, there's a celebration known as the Bar Mitzvah. At the age of 13, Jewish boys and girls, they are considered to become mature enough to fulfill the obligation of the mitzvah. The, the mitzvah, it just means commandments. So the Bar Mitzvah, it's a ceremony to recognize that these boys and girls are now officially men and women. So they now share in the responsibilities of being a full member of the Jewish community. So the, what we see there in the bar mitzvah really is, is something similar to the age of accountability for children. So today's passage really addresses one of the most prominent and most controversial issues today. And that is, what happens when babies die? What happens when babies die? So let's, let's look at this, guys. Let's dive into this. We never see the Jews bless people outside the kingdom of God. That never happens, all through the Old Testament. So what's that tell us? It tells us that all children are inside the kingdom of God until this age of accountability. Now, I, I know that term, the age of accountability, that's not a biblical term. I'm just, I'm using it so we're all on the same page here. And... I think we would all be hard-pressed to say that the, that the age of 13 is, is the exact age for every child of, of accountability. Um, it's probably fair to say around that age. Obviously, it's going to vary from child to child. But all of that to say this, it seems that this scripture passage, it just makes an excellent point that all children before they reach this age where they can understand good and evil, that they are under God's special care that's wrapped up in grace. Meaning that if a child dies before that age, their soul will go to heaven. But once they pass that age of accountability, God's going to hold them accountable just like he holds us accountable. If they fail to repent, 
if they fail to believe in the gospel, you know, there is the issue of heaven and hell for them as there is for us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this is a very comforting truth for those of us who have lost babies and have gone through that tragedy of losing small children. To think about every child who has died prematurely around the world. I mean, think about it. Since the, the beginning of time, it doesn't matter the, the culture, doesn't matter the religion, doesn't matter the race, they are in heaven. Think about that. Think about, the, think about abortion. Think about the, the 60 million babies that have been murdered in the womb just here in our country. They are in heaven. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying children are perfect. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that children are without sin. Uh, scripture tells us that, that we are all born in sin. Psalm 51.5, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Proverbs 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound to the heart of a youth. Uh, that word foolishness there, that means stupid, stupidity. <laughs> it means stupidity. It means we make rash decisions, right? Now, I'm also not suggesting here that children have eternal life and then they lose it when they reach the, the age of accountability. Not suggesting that either. If you're familiar with Pastor John MacArthur, he's a, uh, a pastor in California. He summarizes this text nicely. He says this. He says, God holds children in a condition of grace until they reach the age where they become accountable before him. And it's that temporary conditional grace that will become eternal for those who die before becoming accountable. So the point here is that all babies, all these young children who have died, they are in God's kingdom. They are in heaven because of God's grace. Okay. So let me provide a couple other cross references here that prayerfully will give you a little bit more peace and maybe some closure today as we look at scripture on this subject. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12 we have King David. This is right after King David committed adultery. He, uh, he committed adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. If that wasn't bad enough, he had her husband murdered uh, to cover up the adultery. A prophet by the name of, of Nathan, he walks in, he rebukes David for these sins. And David, he confesses his sin. And then Nathan gives David good news and bad news. The good news is that Nathan reassures David, you're forgiven, all right? You're, you're good. God has forgiven you. The bad news is that sin always brings some form of death. And in this case, it's the physical death of a baby that was conceived in adultery. Now, for seven days, David fasted. He prayed for this baby's life. And when David was told that the, that the child had died... Um, this is what we see. Let's pick it up here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. David got up from the ground. He washed and anointed himself. He changed his clothes. He went to the Lord's house, and then he worshiped. And then he went home and requested something to eat. 
So they served him food, and he ate. And then his servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. And then David said, well, while the baby was alive, I fasted and I wept because I thought, and I hoped and I prayed and I thought, you know, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me. You might let him live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? No, 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 no. I'm going to go to him but he will never return to me. So in other words, David knew that he would, he would see his son again in heaven. Circle that, make a note there, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. He says, I'm going to go to him. I'm going to see him. Now, on the other hand, David also had a son named Absalom. Absalom, he was a rebellious and defiant son. Absalom, he tried to overthrow his father uh, to be king. Long story short, that didn't work out so well for him. Absalom fails. He winds up dead. And yet, when David finds this out, that Absalom is dead, we, we look at the most curious response here from 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. The king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber above the city gate, and he wept. And then as he walked around, he cried, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, why on earth is David so distraught over Absalom? Absalom was trying to kill him. Why was David at such peace with the baby's death and not with Absalom's? It's because of God's special grace on children. The baby had not reached this age of accountability yet. But see, Absalom did. And David knew. David knew he would see that baby in heaven. But he also knew that he would never see Absalom again. Why? Because Absalom did not repent. He did not come to God by faith alone. Moving on to verse 15. Jesus says, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus says, truly, truly I tell you, your translation may say, amen. Amen means let it be, let it be so. So verse 15 is, is powerful. Jesus says, amen. Listen, pay attention here. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. So what we're really not seeing here in the English is, is a, what's called a double negative in the Greek. So in other words, Jesus, he's saying, no, not. No, not. That there is no other way into heaven except to come as a little child through me. Little children, we think of little babies and, and you know, it's like they have this innocence to them. But innocence is not why Jesus blesses these children. The emphasis here is on the children themselves. It's not on their morality. Um, the main point here in verse 15 is a, is a child's helplessness. A child is, is helpless. They have to be dependent on someone to take care of them. So in other words, every child who has ever lived, doesn't matter what race, what culture, what background, 
totally dependent on someone else to take care of them. And Jesus is saying the same thing is true for every person born for the kingdom of God. So scripture is crystal clear on how we get into heaven here. It's only by one way. Theologically, we would say this in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, you want the way to heaven? He says, I'm the way. And when you find the way, you're going to know truth. And when you understand truth, you're going to get life. No one comes to the Father except by me or through me. Through me. Jesus is the mediator. He's the one that stands between God and us. Practically, we look at a passage like Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's, there's Jesus walking out of the grave again. By the way, anybody who walks out of their own grave, I'm just letting you, I'm going to listen to them. I'm all ears. See, this is how you become a child of God. So verse 16, after taking them into his arms, so Jesus has the children now, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. So the parents, they simply just wanted a blessing, but Jesus does much more here, doesn't he? Jesus starts to to pray for these children. He's got them in his arms. It's not like the, the child is in the parent's arms, and he's just going to do this. No, he grabs the child, and he's praying for him. This tells us a lot about Jesus, because the rabbis in the first century, they didn't touch anybody. Jesus is touching everybody. Remember Mark chapter 5? Jesus is walking to Jairus' house. The woman with the hemorrhage, she goes, if I just touch the the hem of his his robe, I'm going to be healed. Power comes from Jesus. Jesus turns around. He looks at the disciples. He's like, who touched me? And there's this huge crowd, right? And the disciples are going, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody's touched you. Everybody has touched Jesus. Everybody wants a piece of him. So unlike the first century rabbis. Have you guys watched the, uh, the first season of the show called The Chosen? There's a really good episode on children. The whole episode's on children. If you have not seen that yet, take a look at that. It's called The Chosen. So picture this. I mean, picture Jesus taking this baby in his arms and the baby having his head on, on Jesus' chest. It's just a very, very tender moment here. Jesus is praying for this precious little child. And as Jesus is praying for this little child, a helpless child, brings us to key point number three. The kingdom of God must be received as a gift. That child received the gift. He can't do anything else but receive it. It's just beautiful. Here's a question. When do we actually enter the kingdom of God? When, when does that happen? Is it when we make the confession that, that Jesus is Lord? Is it at our baptism? When we, is it when we die? Is that when we get into the kingdom of God? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 says this. In Christ, or in Him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Make a note there. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believe. So we enter the kingdom of God, not by our resume, not by our good works or our so-called good works. Um, it's only by simple faith. It's only by obedience to the word of God. So eternal life starts the moment that you repent from your sins. You believe that Jesus died, he was buried, and once again, he walked out of that grave. And guys, the reason he did that was to pay for our sins, to pay for our sins as somebody's got to pay for them, right? Either we're going to pay for them in a very real place called hell, or Jesus has already paid for them, and he didn't have to do that. Some of you may be familiar with a man named D.L. Moody. He was a pastor-preacher guy, and uh, he returned from a church service, and he told uh, his elders or secretary or someone, we had two and a half people who were saved. And they said, what? Two and a half people? Uh, so I'm assuming two adults and a child. He says, no, 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 two children and an adult. Because the children gave their whole lives, the adult, he only had half to give. Hey, don't shoot the messenger here. Today's scripture passage, it, it proves that children are indeed a part of God's kingdom. Um, that God loves children more than we could ever fathom. So if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent, think about that. Ponder that. That God the Father loves those kids more than you could ever think about loving them. The salvation of, of children and the salvation of adults, it comes by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, next week, we're going to see the opposite. Next Sunday, we're going to read the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, boy, this guy, he seemed to have everything going for him. He was young, he was wealthy, he was religious, he was probably tall and had hair. <laughs> he was probably good looking. But aside from all of that, he chose to remain outside the kingdom of God. Why on earth would he do that? Well, you have to come back next Sunday and find out. Stay tuned. If you have any questions about the gospel, if you have any questions about G, if you have any questions about spiritual anything, there is a prayer room through the foyer and to the right, and we would just love to be able to spend some time with you there. Father in heaven, we are so blessed for you to teach us your love for children. Many of us, we just know, we just knew inherently that, that a child, when a child dies, that he would go to heaven. We just knew that. But today, you, you've shown us from Scripture why that's so. And Lord, I can't thank you enough for teaching us this unbelievable truth this morning. May it be a comfort to those of us who have lost children. And may it also be a comfort as we, as, as we go throughout and live our lives this week when we run into people who don't know this and who don't know you, that we can share the love of Jesus in this way as well. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen.